Glad to see you here, whatever your interest is uh, in Landon. Um, people say, why are you doing this class on Landon? What's your, do you know Landon well? And I'd say, no, probably not, not even better than some of you. Um, some of you know him better than serve on his board and things. I know Leanna Margaret do. But uh, I, I'm intrigued by him. In fact, he's caused me to scratch my head a lot, which is, you know, you can see the results of that. Uh, because a lot of us, I think, you know, have you had this experience of asking when people say, well, Landon Saunders, yeah, well, what does he do exactly? Has anybody had that conversation? What, what, what's Landon about? What, what's he up to? And uh, my aunt and uncle live in, lived in College Station, Texas for a long time. And when Landon was invited to speak at the A&M Church, they had him over for lunch. And one of, the, the, one of their young sons, a 10-year-old, walks in, Michael, and um, they said, Michael, this is Landon Saunders. He's with Heartbeat. And he said, oh, we're praying for Heartbeat. We don't know what it is, but we're, we're praying for it. <laughs> well, I know what that means. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad you've... Uh, anybody been to one of his seminars? Yeah? Anybody seen some of his films, Heart of the Fighter or something like yep. that? Anybody heard any of his 60-second broadcasts? Yeah? yeah. Uh, a story I've heard from Landon the last couple of years was one of the things you can do to trace kind of Landon's history is to look at where he's been geographic geographically. So started in West Virginia, came to school at Harding, Freed Hardeman, in the reverse order. Started preaching in Northeast Arkansas, where Jerry was, what, 10? I mean, how old were you when Landon was there? Six. Six, okay. Six, so uh, yeah. Jerry's got the longest uh, history with Landon here, so you should be doing this. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, um, but you watch where Landon moved geographically. He was there in northeast Arkansas in rural towns, small towns, farming communities. And uh, if you would go back to 2015, uh, to these lectures, Landon did a, a one called My Story. This is my story. If you want a, a concise history of Landon's journey, that's it. Uh, in an hour, he did a really, thought a wonderful sweep of his life. But he moved, uh, he did this 80-year tour, or sorry, this 80-country tour in a year, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, he's still touring, I suppose, then. Uh, but uh, he did this 80-country tour, came back, began in 1971, what became the Heartbeat Ministries in Abilene, and it was housed in the Highland, that ministry was housed in the Highland Church building. He said, I can't do this. If I'm going to reach outsiders, if I'm going to reach people who are not churched, I need to not have a church office. So he moved his office to downtown Avenue. That was symbolic as well as strategic. <clears throat> he then uh, realizes he wants to hit bigger populations, so he moves to Houston, one of our larger cities. Then he realized, well, he's really aiming at more non-churched populations, so he moves to New York, and there's where a lot of his 60-second broadcasts uh, occurred. Uh, and then, uh, the way I heard him say it, is he moved to a small town in Vermont. He said, I wanted to see if I could do what I've asked other people to do, how to be with people, and, and without the Landon Saunders, president of Heartbeat persona. And so he moves to this little town in Vermont, and somebody had arranged, I suppose James or someone, had arranged for um, help in unloading his stuff from the U-Haul. So he and this guy are moving into his house, and this guy keeps looking at Landon, and they'd move in a couch, and he'd look at Landon, and Landon <coughs> said it's kept going on. It got to be a little awkward. And the guy finally says, are you Landon Saunders? Because Landon had moved there to be anonymous. <laughs> and the guy says, are you Landon Saunders? Well, yeah. Of course, his voice, right? This is uh, unmistakable uh, voice. And the man said, well, I have to tell you something. He said, I was a Lutheran minister, and I got completely burnt out and disillusioned and walked away from it all. 
He said, then one day I heard one of your broadcasts. And then I heard another one. And then I made sure not to miss them. And I want to tell you, you helped me find my way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was a, a good story. Come on in. So, um, anyway, my purpose here today is to at least increase, if uh, in some people's case, uh, your familiarity with Landon's ministry, uh, to the extent that I can do that, and to increase all of our appreciation uh, for what he's done and how forward-thinking uh, he is. Uh, it's a ministry that's long intrigued me. I want to have a disclaimer here. I'm, I'm not an insider to Landon. Um, I've followed his, like all of you, many of you, followed his work uh, with interest and intrigue, uh, asking myself, how do you get from a biblical text written to believers in religious language, the language of cult and atonement and sacrifice and all that, redemption, how do you get from there to a ministry to non-believers using non-religious language? How do you get there? That's a question that's intrigued me. And so I hope that as a result of our being here together, uh, you can feel uh, somewhat uh, more appreciation for that. You'll recognize some of these pre- uh, pictures through the years. Uh, Landon's been in Singapore a lot, and some of these pictures uh, are from there. Some of you know Dave Hogan. Uh, I thought this was interesting. This is also in Singapore from some years ago. I want you to see the banner and not forget this, Discover- Rediscovering Joy. Uh, we'll get back to that. I did, I did okay, hit it. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Okay. You've been waiting on that, haven't you? Thank you. Just appreciate sure. you checking. It's not a, it's, it's good of you to check. Some people have told you about it. Okay. Uh, okay. So, and then there's this wonderful trash bin. In the front. No, I don't know what that's about. But uh, so, when you ask, when you think about what uh, Landon's mission is, what Heartbeat's mission is, he said it like this: to speak good news to those farthest from the reach of the church, using language common to them. Uh, some years ago, he used uh, the statement using non-religious language, borrowing from. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's notion of a religionless Christianity, uh, which has highly influenced his thinking uh, about what to do. But sometimes that gets a little bit volatile in some circles, so he's changed it to say, in language common to my audience or common to the people I'm trying to reach. More recently, and this is just two summers ago, he said, I wanted to find a word for the world and to speak that word in the midst of the world. I think I've grown up a long time thinking God's primary work is in the church. And I think Landon would say that God's primary work is in the world. Um, And by the way, I wanna say, if if I say Landon, Landon's thought, what I mean is Ross's perception of Landon's thought. I I call this an appreciative interpretation. (laughs) So don't don't be, but he said this uh, two years ago. He said, how does the church engage the world? We sense confusion and failure as increasing millions turn away from churches. Uh, He talks about Robert Putnam's phrase, the nuns. How are we supposed to respond to that? This has been the burden of my work for more than 40 years. I wanted to find a word for the world and to speak that word in the midst of the world. Perhaps you've heard Landon talk about being in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. language like that. In recent months, a number of ministers have told me they would love to speak a word to the world, but don't have a clue about how to do it or what to say. Think about it, Landon said, ministers with no word for the world. But that's been his task. How do you speak that word to the world? How do you speak good news to people in in, in ways that will get a hearing? It's not enough just to speak something as we know. We want it to be heard and received. And so you've got a lot of strategy in, in what he does here. 
talking in this session about a philosophy of ministry tomorrow morning at the same time we'll do this the theological commitments uh, but um, so some of the questions you ask when you talk about a philosophy of ministry is what's the problem and so Landon's talking about human beings in the world he's looked uh, the book of Ecclesiastes has been of great interest to Landon as the writer says what's happening under the sun what are we to make of what's happening under the sun how do we derive meaning from what's happening under the sun when what's been here has been here before and you know, there's nothing new, it's all happened and meaningless, meaningless, I think is how the book starts. You know? Well, that's a page turner. You know? <laughs> uh, how do you find meaning in the world? And those questions um, of the human dilemma have been of great interest to Landon. What's real, what's important, what does it mean to be a human? Where do we find meaning? All those questions uh, are pervasive in his work for the last 50 years, as far as I can tell. And this is a big question. Where do you begin to address the problem? And we'll talk some about the theological method tomorrow. But um, he begins with the experience of the person in the world. Not reading scripture and saying and trying announcing to the people what scripture says, but trying to start with their experience. And you'll see in his own biography some of that. He'll talk about the crucible of human experience and even his own experience uh, as a human being, uh, some of which we'll refer to in a minute. Uh, has shaped him. So, and then what's the hope? What do you hope happens as a, a result of your out, as, as a result of your ministry? And this is where Lennon, I think, has been deliberately um, not focused on uh, quantitative outcomes. I think Landon would say that we have uh, not sown. We're trying to reap what we haven't sown, mm -hmm. and so he said, "Mine is a sowing ministry, and uh, the reaping will." could come later, but we have to do some other hard work first. So uh, those are some of the questions we'll, we'll talk. He talks about his concerns have to do with what does it mean to be a human being, uh, his broadcasts, his workshop literature. What does this mean? I think more recently he said this. I'm, I'm focused on two questions. What does it mean to be a human being, and what does it mean to be with yeah. a human being? He said that a lot lately. Uh, if you want to listen, he, he was last year he closed out the mm -hmm. lectures, the, the evening um, keynote last year, so you can refer to that on, on iTunes as well. What does it mean to be with another human being? How to live with joy? <coughs> Boy, that's been a big theme of his, and we'll talk more about that. And then how to live in life-giving uh, relationships. Those kinds of concerns. Those aren't all of them, of course, but these are the kinds. Does that match what you guys know? Yes. You've heard literature. Yes what you've heard from his films and things. So what I want to do is I want to connect what Landon has done with some recent research uh, on human flourishing. And uh, Leonard uh, Allen first put me onto this. Uh, Miroslav Volf is, uh, teaches at Yale Divinity School. He's published a book in 2016, Flourishing, Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World. His emphasis is on as uh, what happens apparently in the field of psychology is that they've made a turn about uh, 20 years ago. They stopped looking at just dysfunction. Uh, how do you repair dysfunction in human life and started looking at what do we know about what creates thriving life, flourishing life. A similar turn was done about 20 years earlier than that in uh, family research. They quit looking just at dysfunctional families and families that produce troubled teens and started looking at healthy family research. Uh, and so a similar shift apparently took place uh, about 20 years later in the field of psychology. Uh, well, this is a theological school. And he, he's publishing this. He founded and now directs the Yale Center uh, for Faith and Culture. 
And I wanted you to see uh, some things that they're studying. These are all different projects. God and human flourishing. Theology of joy. And the good life. A theology of joy. Landon's been talking about this for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Life worth living. Meaningful (coughs) life. And these are projects birthed in the last few years. Last handful of years. uh, From one of our leading divinity schools in the U.S. And uh, on human flourishing. And uh, I would suggest to you that these kind of things Landon has been uh, talking about a long, long time. This guy... Uh, kicked off the field now known as positive uh, psychology, Martin Seligman. He wrote a book uh, four years ago, or six years ago, four years before uh, Bowles, Flourish, a, visioning, a Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being. He's the same guy that came up with the phrase learned helplessness, um, if you know that uh, theory or not. But he's kind of considered the head of positive psychology, but uh, 1998 is when he sort of st- t- championed this turn uh, to look at what we might focus on in terms of what causes human beings to flourish and live well, uh, not just uh, their dysfunction, trying to repair it uh, with psychological therapy. Okay, so he came up with this PERMA uh, acronym. Uh, He says, we know these things to be true. Our our research so far says that uh, human flourishing uh, is present when these things are characteristic of human flourishing. And by the way, if you want these slides, just write me and I'll send them to you. Cochran at harding.edu, I'll send them to you. But uh, positive emotion. Optimism and positivity, not just positive thinking, uh, a little more than that, but uh, certainly the whole notion of uh, what do you do when you're met with challenge and circumstances? Do you collapse? You know, attitude, the attitude you bring to your trouble uh, is as much um, uh, important as as any other ingredient in how you um, meet it. Uh, He distinguishes between pleasure and enjoyment. Pleasure is more sensual, uh, sensual bodily needs. Uh, enjoyment as intellectual stimulation and creation, which is related to the second one, engagement. Uh, this would be, engagement would be focusing on uh, maybe you uh, knit, something that, re- or you do woodworking, or you play music, or anything, read, anything that requires you to focus fully on that task at the moment. He says those kinds of activities that research says contribute to uh, emotional and spiritual well-being, uh, better relationships, intellectual stimulation, creativity, uh, with the ability to be fully engaged uh, in uh, some task. Relationships, social connections, this is a very big part of this human flourishing, as you would imagine. Uh, humans thrive on connection, love, intimacy. Uh, from our Christian heritage, we know that. Um, but they're looking at this just uh, more generally from um, psychological perspectives. A strong emotional, physical interaction with other human beings, building positive relationships, spread love and joy. So relationships, we'll get back to that. Meaning, again, Landon's talked a lot about relationships and meaning. Having a purpose is important to happiness and fulfillment. Meaning gives people a reason for their lives. Listen to that, a reason for their lives. Have you heard Landon say, you need a reason to get up in the morning? Yeah. This will give you a reason to get up in the morning. Say. Uh, those kinds of phrases point to uh, this aspect of meaning. And then accomplishment, something uh, about for which you have a sense of a- achievement. I was a part of a high school band that had some success. And I, looking back, I think that gave us some confidence. I think that spilled over into some other areas. And uh, Landon's talked a lot about success, right? Redefines it differently than sometimes it gets defined in our culture. But um, he talks a lot about 
um, succeeding and winning, winning at life, how to win mm -hmm. seven out of eight days a week, you know, things like that. So uh, th these are, these are new, this is a new construct in the last six years. And Land has been talking about all this stuff for over 50 years. Uh, it's developed, of course, morphed over the years, but uh, that's part of what I want you to get from today is uh, Landon's forward thinking about human life and human experience. Uh, he's had a big emphasis on joy, as you know. He's defined it like this. Joy is not an end to be pursued, but an energy to be applied. I was attending a wedding of a good friend. Um, this is Lauren Brady, Brian. Uh, Brady's Landon's middle name. She was named for, uh, for Landon. And at her wedding, Landon had a part, and he said this. He said, he said, he said Lauren, I have two words for you. One word is yes. And the other word is joy. And he said this at that wedding, and I scribbled it down as best I could and then wrote him, and I said, I want to be sure I understood what you said. And so he responded, and he said, yes. He said, I've just found over the years that uh, when I meet a hardship, if I embrace joy, you know, I said, I've just again and again and again. So I love this definition. It's not an end you pursue. It's an energy you apply. And we look at Scripture, and we see texts like, text from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says, be joyful always. You know, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. These imperatives, these constant practices. Um, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Well, be joyful always. Well, if it, it is if it's an energy you can apply. Right. So I, I love that. I've repeated this to students many, many times. And they go right to their notes. You know, they're kind of in a daze. But when I say this, they... They like that, and so they'll write that down. Uh, and I asked him uh, a year or so ago, I said, Landon, why, why joy? You've talked about that so much. Why, why that? And he said, well, he said, I spent a lot of time urging couples, for example, to love each other more. Well, that a lot of success. But he said, everybody wants more joy. And I found that joyful people are also more loving. I've wondered if there aren't some gateway dispositions. Um, Ruth Haley Barton has spoken of gratitude that way. She says gratitude is the beginning of the spiritual life. And I, I think what she means by that is that if gratitude's present, there's also probably some other important spiritual dispositions that are present. And if it's not present, then those other important dispositions are probably... So they're characteristic of larger bundles of spiritual disciplines, and, and I think Landon would say that about joy. If joy is present, there's going to be lots of other things also, and so that would explain why he talks about uh, joy so much. Um, <clears throat> so, life that loves to happen, I thought I might uh, play for you a clip here from uh, one of his life to love to happen's uh, seminars. I think this is from hey, Singapore. He's been talking. Uh, he's been talking about three fish. Not this is not Fred the fish. This is the other fish. Uh, but he's been talking about fish and uh, how they were in this small pond and they were trying to get out of this pond. Uh, and so he's, now he's talking about the third fish. I'll let you just play about four minutes of this. What we'll do is I will just get up and I'll just have all kinds of fun. This is the second I'm fish. just going to jump around. I'm going to play around. I'm going to act, act like everything is just great. But pretty soon here came the nets and grabbed the fish and put him in the frying pan. And as he was being fried, he thought, do you know if I ever get out of this, I'm going to go to a larger place. 
Now, how many times have, with our own lives, we sense, we can sometimes sense that we're not, we're not quite where we would like to be. You hear that transition to looking at Sometimes the we look out and we see the possible danger. Sometimes we look out and we see that maybe this job isn't going to go the way exactly that I might want it to go. Or maybe I've got disease. Or, or, or maybe there's tragedy that comes to my life or to my family. And we're always thinking about how, how do I respond? And one of the things that I've discovered in my own life is that the larger place for a human being is always the place of joy. That there's something about life that loves to happen. Life that loves to happen at work. Life that loves to happen. And so at times in my own life, when I have been most up against it, when I've felt the greatest danger, the times when I felt the deepest and most profound loneliness. The times when I've thought, there's nowhere to turn. I look deep within myself and I try to summons and to find that place of joyfulness. Because if I can find that, one of the great things about joy is the flip side of joy is tragedy. And that's what makes it work in the midst of all of this. Now, where does all of this fit with work? I had the privilege of meeting several years ago the owner, the founder and owner of the largest real estate company in the United States, really, I think, in the world. It was the Trammell Crow Company that was located in Dallas, Texas. Mr. Crow was a remarkable man, a remarkable entrepreneur who had built this magnificent company from scratch. And so naturally he was a sought-after speaker in the business schools all across America and many parts of the world. And so he's at Harvard Business School and he delivers his speech and at the end of the speech, he opened it up for questions. And here were all these bright business majors sitting out there. And one of them stood and said, Mr. Crow, my question is this. In all the years you've had in business, what is the single most important thing in business? Characteristic of Mr. Crow, he took off his glasses. And he rubbed his face. And he looked at them and said, Love. Isn't that a strange thing? One of the greatest businessmen in the world. And when asked, What is the most important thing in business? He said, The most important thing. Is love. Okay. Well, just a sample um, uh, that you, you may have seen before. So uh, these emphases on joy, uh, on love, uh, you see he, he begins talking about something. He'll immediately ask them to look at their life. When we look at our lives, that's a constant turn. Um, and so what, what's going on there? Why does Landon ask people to examine 
uh, their lives. You may know the educator uh, Paulo Freire, a uh, Brazilian, um, wrote a couple of books. One was uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and the other um, Education for a Critical Consciousness. But Freire said he was teaching illiterate farmers uh, night school classes, teaching these grown these men to read. And he said they'd come into class and they're very animated and then they would sit down and they were doing whatever the Portuguese equivalent is of see Dick run, see Jane run, see Spot run. You know. And then they'd have a break and they'd all sit there very passively and then have a break and they'd go back to their chattering. And then class would start and they'd be very passive again. And he got to look, thinking about that passive experience and the very animated experience and begin wondering what's going on. And so he began to listen to their conversations before class and on the breaks and what was, what was animating them so. And it was the problems they were having as poor farmers. And so he changed the curriculum. Instead of teaching people to read words, he said, I wanted to teach them to read their reality. That was his phrase. I want to teach people to read their reality. And so the, the, the curriculum became, rather than see spot run, it was see the cows drink the water. The cows are standing in the water. I mean, I don't know if this is exactly mm -hmm. scripture, but you know, the cows are pooping <coughs> in the water. <laughs> the children are playing in the water. The children are sick. Why are the children sick? Hmm. Why do the children play in the same water as the cows are standing? And so you begin to look at that and you realize he's turning people, uh, impoverished persons, to look at the sources, the, the reasons for their poverty, the systemic mm -hmm. reasons for their poverty. And make a long story short, my understanding is Brazil kicked him out of the country. Brazil's a big country. But if you leave people, if you leave poor people to think about why they're poor, and they think about that long enough, they're going to say, we're not taking this anymore. Uh, and so, but, but that turn to experience, okay? uh, the liberation theologies. Once when I was at Boston College, I had a, a course uh, in liberation theology by the head of, the father of uh, liberation theology, a guy named Peruvian about this tall name, Gustavo Gutierrez. And he wrote the book, the first book on liberation theology. Basically, liberation theology takes the Exodus story as its primary story. Here is a, a people impoverished and liberation theology comes out of some of these very autocratic dictatorial uh, Latin and South American countries where uh, the resources, the, uh, the uh, international aid sources are pocketed by the leaders and don't get to the people they're intended for and so uh, basically the more extreme forms of liberation theology um, they would say that military revolution even would be blessed by God because justice is so important to God. They talk about the privileged place of the poor in reading scripture. God is always so on side, the, the side of the poor that if you want to know what scripture says, we need to ask the poor because they're in the best position to understand what he's saying. Okay? Preference, God's preferential option for the poor, they talk about. What's he doing? What are they doing? They're asking people to look at their experience of oppression, like the Israelites in Egypt. And God brought them out with a powerful hand, a military solution, you might say. Um, that's, that's extreme form. But the idea is, uh, in education with Freire, in theology with the liberation theology that followed it, uh, they're asking people to look at their experience. And Landon's been pointing people to look at their lives, his whole ministry. And so I think that uh, connection's important um, as well. 
Well, um, he's uh, one of the things that the um, positive psychology in this move to human flourishing is asking us to look at is relationships. And uh, there's a quote uh, from from Landon's five ideas. Uh, this was this is kind of a, a bad copy. It was under the glass of my desk. I've had it I don't know 30 years or so. Anybody seen this in some form? The five ideas. Um, uh, you can't read that here, and I, I forgot to bring it with me. Maybe I can make this out. This is a statement I read at every um, marriage ceremony I perform. They can do anything they want in the wedding. I said, but I'm reading this. <laughs> you get your way about everything except this. I'm reading this. And it says, marriage means a man and woman looking deep into each other's eyes and saying, I will never leave you. Others may come and go in your life, but I never will for any reason, ever. Uh, if you... Uh, Ringo, I'll love you. If you fail, I'll stay with you. If you get sick, I'll feed you, bathe you, sit up with you, anything except leave you. I will never leave you. Now, we recognize that as a very covenantal form of unconditional love, right? But he doesn't say, now Paul says in Romans, or you know, it's not religious language, but it's definitely a Christian value. And it's said in ways that people go, yeah, that's what I want my marriage to be, you know? Everybody would sign on to that regardless of being a person of faith or not. Uh, the first one, today I'll be a friend. Okay? Uh, no expectations, uh, no conditions, I'll simply be a friend. And nothing my friend can do can change that. So again, this radical commitment to being faithful in friendship, in marriage. Um, today I'll... Um, change my life and my family's life with just 60 seconds. I will look deep into their eyes in a way that they'll know that nothing and no one else in the world in, is in my mind but them. We talk a lot today about uh, the place of our cell phone technology and how, I mean, how, many, how common is it to walk into a room and everybody's looking at their phones or at a dinner table, you know, a restaurant table. They're looking at their phones instead of each other. And in very much a different style than that, uh, he would point us to this radical attention to the individual in front of us. This isn't, these are old statements. These are, I don't know, 1970s, would you guess, Jerry? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you know, buddy? We've seen, yeah, it looks like. Mid 70s? 70s. Or so. I mean, just yeah. the design, the colors. Yeah. Looks like stuff we were using. Well, I wouldn't notice that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but these ideas, he just put a declaration of personal independence, right? You hear the languages of love and, and joy and radical presence uh, with another human being. These are all um, uh, very important. Uh, this is a book of sermons, uh, The Power of Receiving, that uh, he was asked to publish. In fact, in the, um, uh, the preface, he acknowledges that um, Rural Lemons, I think, or somebody who's editing these, uh, asked him to... Um, do these sermons for 10 years before he got around to it. So this has been published in, I don't know, 1979 or something. So um, it's been there. Uh, it was in his mind a lot earlier than that even. Um, but I wanted you to read a couple of things here. And this might uh, be something we revisit tomorrow in the theological stuff. But uh, Landon will talk a lot about, you know this text in Matthew that says, whoever receives you receives me. It's at the end of the Matthew 10 limited commission. Uh, there are a few other stories in the Gospel of Matthew, only in the Gospel of Matthew, where encounter with another person is the place where you'll find Jesus showing up. Um, so that Matthew 10, cup of cold water section, 
when you others receive you. Uh, it's Matthew 18 that says uh, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. He brings a child to the center and says, unless you become like this child, for whoever receives a child receives me. Uh, the Matthew 25 text, this final judgment text that begins with the, the king separating the sheep from the goats and the criteria of what? Did you dispense mercy or not? You know, that's the criteria. I was hungry and you fed me. He said, I was naked and you clothed me, etc., etc. And the disciples say, huh? We don't remember that. We don't remember if you were naked, Jesus. We don't remember that. What are you talking about? He said, well, whatever you did the least of these, you did to me. Okay. And so you have several of those in, in Matthew's gospel. We are encounter with another person. But, well, um, the, the Matthew 18 text that we referred to about resolution, conflict resolution, uh, going to someone who sinned against you, right? Uh, that ends with this statement, where two or three are gathered, there I will be. That's, that's got a context. And it's not, you know, if you have a small church or, you know, you, ask, you hold a retreat and only a few show up, you console yourself by saying, <laughs> well, at least Jesus is here. <laughs> no, it's a context of people trying to come together to accomplish that very important thing in God's value system called reconciliation. And Jesus said, if you're trying to reconcile, I'll show up for that. And so it's those kinds of encounters that Landon has in mind when he, he says stuff like this. So uh, when he talks about the power of receiving, that's the last of the sermons in this, um, this series, also the book title. He talks about uh, receiving other people a lot. And then he turns to being received uh, by other people. And he says this, you see the critical aspect of evangelism is whether you'll be received by others. This means, as we've pointed out, that you must be willing to receive them as God is willing to receive them. It also says something about your being received. This means that you must never be unaware of who you are or the importance attached to every relationship. It means we carry the most important ingredient of evangelism in our persons. Therefore, we move about in our offices with a new vision of what it means to relate to people uh, in the world. Uh, I once heard him um, talk about he bought a car, some dealership. He just walked in and said, I don't, need, I don't have time to battle about prices. I just I want that car. I want, you to, I want to know what the least you'll take for that car is. And so they told him a price. And he said, okay, I want you to add $100 to that because I just want to make sure as a salesperson you got what's coming to you. Who, who does that? Who thinks about how the other person will experience you? It's common to get the lowest price and, and go away and be glad that you think you got a deal. But, but Landon said, I want to be sure that you got what you've got coming to you. Or uh, the story about, you know, you, you didn't get the promotion. The other person did. Why not send them flowers and congratulate them? You know? uh, to, to be with people in such a way, as Paul would say, that you make the gospel attractive is how yes. Paul would say it. But, Paul, but, but Lana would talk about we need to receive others and we need to conduct ourselves in a way that we are received by others. No meeting with a person is insignificant. We are now aware that what another person feels during that meeting can deeply affect his or her acceptance of Christ. This was written 
1979, published in 1979, and had been thinking about it for 10 years before that. So you do the math. I must then be the kind of person that recommends my Lord. My life must bear his image. My attitude must not hinder the possibility of his entrance into another life. Uh, so I, I like that story a lot. Another story he's told about, um, he said there was a king and he had three sons and he was thinking about who, uh, which of the sons he would, would become king after him. And so he called them in and said, I want you to go out into the world and bring back the most important thing in the world. And so the first son comes back and he's dressed as a, in a military uniform. He's got generals and military strategists flanking him. And he said, the most important thing in the world is power. And if I'm king, I'll expand the borders of, of our kingdom. And the father closed his eyes and he could see his son floating in a river of blood. And the second son came in and said, I found it. The most important thing is knowledge. And he was flanked by uh, academicians and um, wise persons and scholars and, and uh, he said if I make king I'll run the kingdom so efficiently I have all these rules and regulations that are beneficial to people the king closed his eyes and he could see his people standing in line in the snow to fill out forms <laughs> so that's no good the third son came in and he was holding in each hand the hand of a child and he said the most important thing in the world is a person and uh, he said he said I, he, king could see the blood and the snow disappear and the people carrying the son on their shoulders uh, proclaiming him to be king well that, that message of, of a human being being the most important thing in the world uh, if you've followed Landon at all you know that to be uh, important and so you revisit this stuff you lay all that what Landon's done beside this um, information on human flourishing you think about okay there's joy positive emotion and Landon talks about that over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? And has for 50 years. Uh, there's engagement, there's relationships. Okay? There's nothing more important than a human being. And so his question now, after doing this for 50 years, is how will you be with another person? Well, uh, the transformation that Landon himself uh, underwent in Northeast Arkansas, again, he recounts this uh, in a couple of places. Um, I did this at the 2016 Scholars Conference. We talked about two people in particular, uh, James Garner, and those of you who know this story better than I do want to contribute, a young boy who had already been in several penal institutions uh, one Saturday morning uh, in a basketball, in a gymnasium. Uh, this boy took a, a blank pistol, I guess a starting pistol, poked it in the stomach of another person, and pulled the trigger. And so the police, and what are we going to do with this kid? And somehow. Uh, he came to live with Landon. I don't know the details of that, but, uh, but Landon said the people uh, told the boy how fortunate he was. And they told me how, and they praised me for being so noble to take him in. But he said another story was unfolding inside the house. And he said in particular one moment, uh, one night they had this huge fight. They both went to the rooms and slammed the door. Uh, and Landon said, what is going on? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have nothing to offer this boy. And so he goes and he apologizes to James and says, I don't know what to do, but I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. And he asks for his forgiveness, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so just the experience of, again, pointing to his own experience. He's pointed us to look at our experience, and he's looked at his own experience and said, what's going on? That's a good question to ask. Mm -hmm. What's going on? 
Uh, and then this woman, Lorraine Porter, who he said was the poorest woman up to that point he'd ever met. Lots of children. Seven or 13, I can't remember the number. It's a lot. After a while, I guess you could count. <laughs> uh, but she was poor, and the church you know, looked at her with disdain, and um, just all the kinds of problems and manifestations of, of poverty that you typically think of were present, apparently, in this person's life. And uh, Landon got to know her and got to appreciate what she was up against. Um, and she came to the door one day and said, I want you to baptize me. And he said, well, what's happening? He said, well, apparently his church came around and said, uh, people have given us stuff over the years. They come to the door, they knock, they pass in the basket of food, and God bless you, and off they go. He said, but you guys didn't walk away. And, and again, that presence with another human being um, that uh, psychologists are now saying are what causes human thriving to have, have relationships like that. You know, Landon has forged and pointed the way for um, all along. Well, uh, what I think we'll do tomorrow is um, let me give you a little, uh, little taste of this. Uh, we'll talk some about his um, the theological commitments. Um, as you can imagine, Landon has used Jesus as the ultimate minister and he's been in the Gospels a lot. And so we'll look at some of those gospel texts and try to name the, the commitments uh, that have, uh, have shaped him. I'd like to ask you what you, uh, what you would add to this, a story you'd fill in, uh, something that you uh, have also heard him say that, that matches this or is different than this or beyond this. You want to add something? Yeah. This? One of the stories I remember the most, I think, is he said, if you ever get depressed, he said, set an alarm clock for about 30 minutes and then just take a, a picture of depression and pour it over your head and just let it go through every fiber you're being. And then when the alarm clock goes off, say, okay, that's over, let's get up and get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, which is another way of embracing joy, right? Yeah. yeah. Good. Someone else? Okay. I can tell you a story about James. Yeah. <clears throat> James Did you know Paul. James? I know James, knew James. I, uh, we sat in this little church in Corning, Arkansas, and up it was full, packed. And there was a little section over the side where about three pews facing that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's our church building too. Yeah, and Landon's up there preaching, and this is the day James saved us all. <clears throat> Landon's up there preaching, just going at it like he can do. And James, in the midst of all that, yells out, not real loud the first time, but and we're, we can't even really understand him, but he yells, far! <clears throat> Shh, James, quiet, we're in church. And he yells out again, far! Louder this time. And we're all, shh, be quiet. Know if he'd got the spirit or something or what's going on. <laughs> Finally, the third time, he stands up, yells it out, points to the back of the building, which is on fire. <gasps> oh! <laughs> James was the one in the building wasn't paying attention at dude. I thought he was trying to get Landon to hush. I thought so, it was just a ploy. Out they all went. They got out of the building. That's funny. So that's my my most profound memory of James. Others. Bruce? Uh Kayla and I got to have dinner with him a 
month ago, which was amazing, and he told James Garner's story. And what struck me about it was it's as if he had told it, he was as, it was as if he was telling a story for the very first time. And his capacity to slow himself, his, his superhero skill to me is his ability to lock eyes with you. Like you're the only person on the, in the planet yeah. kind of thing. And the, so it gives you such meaning and value in that regard. And it's just, it's amazing. But as he told the James Garner story, he said, I just went back to that room and he said, just a feet. And uh, yeah. And he said, so you know, I sat there at the word open, and so about an hour later, I came out a changed man. Yeah. I said, I'm sorry. I'm going to be imperfect in the future, but I want you to know from here going forward, things are going to be different between you and me. Yeah. Yeah. And, just, and he, I think he said he's going to be able to see him this summer. Mm. One of the things that we'll note tomorrow is um, that Landon pointed out is that these encounters that we have with others, I've often uh, thought of them as a way to change the other person. Mm -hmm. That we're with them in such a way that they'll change. And I think there's some truth to that, right? Salt and light and other things. But Landon would say also, at least, that uh, these encounters are supposed to change us. And uh, I think that's pretty important too. This guy, Sean Acor, used to teach at Harvard. Uh, I think now he's just got this own business. He goes around lecturing on uh, work and production at work and his research says you know typically we follow the model that if you work hard and then you have success then you'll be happy and have joy and he says what we're finding is scientifically that if you bring joy to the workplace you're more productive you you enjoy it more you enjoy the people you're with more and it's just it's win 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 in every category you think about if we bring joy to the task rather than postponing it and uh, he's got a TED talk that's hilarious, uh, that's about 13 minutes long. Uh, but one of the things that uh, he says, and I'll close with this, he says it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, and Landon will talk a lot about the reality, the trouble, we heard him talk about the trouble from John 16, and again the Ecclesiastes human dilemma. It's not necessarily the reality that shapes it, it's the lens through which your brain views the world. He's talking about the, uh, just from a chemical point of view, that the lens through which you uh, view the world that shapes your reality. So again, uh, he's responding to this positive psychology research that's come out just in the last 10 years, and Landon's been there uh, all along. So uh, one of the things I hope you'll take away is just uh, an, um, an awareness, perhaps, of this new field of positive psychology, of this human flourishing is the phrase you'll want to search for, uh, and just the reality that Landon uh, has been there a long, long time. Uh, pointing us to that. Sometimes using that word, sometimes using the word thriving, and other times just talking about life that loves to happen. But uh, that's also what I'd hope you'd take away. It's just an appreciation for how forward-thinking uh, Landon has been. Um, and again, we'll talk tomorrow about his theological commitments, but uh, some of us are trying to, um, while Landon's still with us, to put down some things that he can say, yeah, that's close, or not so much, or, uh, so that's, that's part of what this is about. Le Leon? Ross, uh, I took a picture of the classroom, sent it to Landon, he sent back, wish I could be there with you guys. Uh, I'm glad he's not. Well, <laughs> 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 I'd love to be with Landon, but I don't want to be in this, you know. <laughs> anyway. The Lord bless you. Take care.